Let me introduce Chris. Chris, and um, he, uh, for me, he's got all the accolades, but for me, he's my friend. And uh, Chris and I have shared a lot of uh, breakfasts and coffees and walks and some front porch time. And a couple, three years back, I went through some pretty hard times in business. And uh, Chris really was a friend that I needed during those times. And so, and we uh, share a foxhole now uh, in a business context these days. And uh, it's just a joy to uh, share life with him on a variety of fronts. Um, Chris moved here from Michigan a few years back, and uh, he came, um, he's a skier from lakes up there, so if you ever want to spend time with Chris, just say skiing or something to do with boating, and you've found a friend. So uh, he worked for an organization called Zonderman and been in the publishing business a long, long time, and uh, moved here to take on a role and serve in a position of CEO of David C. Cook here in town. So he has... uh, Stuff going on all over the world. He'll be in China in the next few weeks. And just uh, the, the, the uh, depth and breadth of his work and influence is really extraordinary. So, um, so it, it, his words come with um, a lot of history and a lot of experience working with men. And so um, I'm excited to, uh, to have him come share. He's, um, he's the husband of Trudy. How many years? 30 years in November. And graced with a son and a daughter and... So, just a good man. So, you guys welcome him and uh, come on up and let me just pray over you and we'll get going. So, Father, thank you for Chris. Thank you for friendship. And that's the context why, in which the word is shared tonight. And so, thank you for these brothers standing here. We open wide our hearts in Jesus' name. Let your Holy Spirit just speak through Chris now and empower him in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, my friend. I'm going to move that so I don't spill it. There we go. Well, good evening, everybody. Um, It's really my privilege to be here with you. Um, I'm a new lifer. Uh, I love this church. I decided, my wife and I and our kids, uh, that this was going to be our church home uh, about, I don't know, three months before Ted left. Uh, So that got interesting for a while. Um, But ultimately... um, as I was coming in to be the president of David C. Cook, people would say, so where do you go to church? And I would go, new life. Right? They'd say, where? i say, uh, new life. And they would say, well, isn't that? Yes, it is. But it wasn't about him. And it was that process that actually helped me understand at a much deeper level what the church, the local assembly of the body of Christ, was really all about. It, it, it pricked my thinking, um, and it put me on a path and a journey that today I'm still on, and I trust I'll be on it for the rest of my life. Uh, but I drove a stake deep into the ground and said, I'm sticking it out here, because nothing's perfect. I'm not. They're not. So let's do the best we can with what God has given us and go from there. Anybody relate to that? Yeah, thank you. I, it's one of those things that for me was a, was a real big insight. And I remember talking to people even in my small group back then who were all considering, you know, another church. All right, so you won't have that problem, but you'll have another one, right? So um, the, the first slide for me uh, really just talks about my talk. 
It's pretty simple stuff, really. Um, not looking for any revelation or epiphany tonight. Um, but I trust that something here will strike you. It, simply think about it. Pretty simple title. And I really have five points. I know pastors are supposed to have three. I have five. And I only have 20 minutes to do it. So I'm going to have to move along. But um, how many of you in the room are married? Wow. Okay. How many of you have kids? Wow. Okay. That makes it simple. Um, How many of you were, were kids once? How many of you believe in the Bible as the authoritative word of God? How many of you went to school K through 12? How many of you went to college? Smart group. Okay, now now I'm intimidated. Life is full of learning, and we talk about life and learning a lot. Uh, And really, these days, we talk about it as a lifelong process because it starts early, doesn't it? Think about what your parents taught you to do. First, they taught you how to use the bathroom, taught you how to talk, how to eat, how to feed yourself, how to get dressed. They taught you manners. They taught you how to share. They taught you a lot. And most everyone here is a parent, so you're already teaching your kids or have taught your kids those same things, right? Learning starts early. And I would argue it never ends. If you go to school seven hours a day for 12 years, and then you go home and your parents teach you some more, your mind isn't even conscious of the stuff that you're learning, but you're learning. And you're learning, and you're learning, and you're learning. Some of us recognize that some of the most important learnings we've ever had actually came through the mistakes that we made and the struggles that we had. It had nothing to do with reading, writing, and arithmetic. And then we got older, and we went to work. And work sometimes is, anybody here think work feels like a treadmill? You just go faster every day. The the pace of work and the pace of change at work is at an all-time high. Technology is only one of the reasons. And so many of us are now under pressure and feel a great deal of pressure uh, to learn new things. I'm in the publishing business. So we do music, we do books, we do curriculum. um, And we do it on a global scale. And everything about publishing is changing. To publish means to make public. That's easy. In fact, the Internet makes it easier than ever. But the definition of publishing are the activities, processes, and business models by which you make it all public. And everything about the activities, processes, and business models are changing. Everything. Most of the people in my organization will say that, look, I I learned it this way. I don't even know how to do that? How do you help me learn to do this? And so they're on a treadmill that goes faster and faster every day, and they got to learn more and more every day. Anybody relate to this? We're all sort of in that same boat. And so for me, um, I read an article in the USA Today coming home 
I used to go to New York regularly. My favorite time in New York was wheels up out of LaGuardia. <laughs> USA Today says burnout is up among U.S. employees. Duh. Uh, slow to recover economy is taking a new toll on U.S. workers. Not only are they stressed from job uncertainty and stagnant pay, the stress has lasted so long that they're burned out too, a new survey finds. Um, one guy says, it gets to the point where it's drudgery just to get to work in the morning. 63% of workers, this research shows, uh, <clears throat> cite high levels of stress with extreme fatigue and feeling completely out of control as they learn to manage time. 39% said that the workload is their biggest cause of stress in their life. Used to be my wife. No, I'm just kidding. But it's true, isn't it? Think about it. Our life and our work require, require us not only to learn at rapid paces, but to teach others. We're teaching people we work with. We're teaching people we work for. Right? We're teaching our kids. So learning is lifelong, but now we're teaching. And so at the end of the day, point one is your mind is central everything that you do, right? Two passages of scripture, Matthew 22, 20, 34 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your, what? Mind. Romans 12, verse 2 says, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right. So that... You can test and approve what God's perfect will is. Think about it. Real transformation, the stuff we really all want, is centered on your mind. I know there's a spiritual component to all of this, right? We're, we're, a, we're a whole being. But, but love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Think about that. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can test and approve what God's perfect will is, to grapple with, to wrestle, to reason, to talk with others. How many of us grew up in their family and, and, and the parents passed the faith down to you? You learned your faith from them? Okay. My son didn't actually own his own faith until he was 24. He believed everything I told him until he got to college, and then we had a little issue, but... Uh, at some point, he had to own it for himself. What I taught him and what he learned from me was sufficient for a time. But at some point, he had to make the transition. And it was all in his own mind. And in fact, it happened in an astronomy class. I don't have time for the conversation, but it was a good one. So, your mind is central to this process. And we all know it, Right? Would we agree with that? Okay, okay. So, if you think about people you know or people that are you, can you picture in your mind's eye people that you know that you actually saw transform over time? Maybe he became a believer, he or she, but saw real-life transformation take place in someone's life. Anybody? I'm 
going to the Mayo Clinic next week. <coughs> going to the one in Scottsdale because I learned to go south in the winter and north in the summer. Uh, I got to get an annual checkup. So I'm on the site and I'm looking up in the Mayo Clinic <coughs> and it says, you know, outbreak of Alzheimer's and dementia. Wow. Yeah, we hear a lot about that. But apparently, this is like an exponential explosion of Alzheimer's and, and um, dementia over the last few decades. So I started to look at this, and it says, um, a great deal of thought and discussion had gone into this. There's little that can be done once you're diagnosed. But now they're talking about prevention. In order, the top three things to do, exercise, diet, mental stimulation. Okay, so I was on a cruise a couple of years ago, and all the old people were there. I was young compared to most people who were on that ship. And they were having this discussion about how you got to keep your mind alive, right? We're, now we're back to neurosurgery, right, Ronnie? But essentially what they were saying is every year you have to really think about something new. Learn a new language. I learned Spanish when I was 44. I didn't realize it was the right thing to do, but just did it. Learn to play the guitar. Those kinds of suggestions are coming out rapidly now to seniors. Mental stimulation can prevent Alzheimer's to some degree, according to the Mayo Clinic. I just thought it was interesting. And so there was a discussion on the site about how did we get here? How did this happen? And I'll offer one thought in the form of a story. I fly a lot. Okay, I'm sitting on a plane. And in front of me is a little screen, and uh, it's, it's, it's playing the news. I think I'm on CNN or something. And uh, it scrolls by and says, be entertained. Cool. But it goes on to say, be entertained. Your flight's not over yet, it's, so it's not too late to enjoy the best in entertainment available. The time to swipe is now. Sit back and relax for the rest of your flight. Flying has never been more entertaining. Relax for the rest of your flight. Wow. So I was sitting around the fireplace a couple months ago with a friend of mine who happens to be a pastor at Woodman Valley, and we were chatting about this. <clears throat> and here's what we did. We replaced the word flight and flying with life and living. And now we get at one of the biggest problems I think we have not just in this country and in this culture, but around. Listen to this. Same thing I just read. I just replaced one word. Be entertained. Your life's not over yet. So it's not too late to enjoy the best entertainment available. The time to swipe is now. Sit back and relax for the rest of your life. Because living has never been more entertaining. So sit back and relax for the rest of your life. Amusement and entertainment. If you look it up in the dictionary, basically it says to divert your attention so as to deceive. The condition of pleasurable diversion. Something diverting or engaging. That's Webster. I didn't make that up. Okay? Now, I don't want you to think I'm against entertainment. I love movies. My wife loves popcorn. We go regularly. I, I love good entertainment. I really do. But we're in an age in the culture that worships it. I just watched the Grammys. I got invited to go to the Grammys. I'm in the music business. Wish I could have gone. I watched the Oscars. Anybody watch entertainment tonight? 
We are a culture that worships entertainment. Do you know when you work 40 hours a week, you put 2,080 hours in a year? You know what the average person spends entertaining themselves in front of a television, movie screen, a computer, social media? 3,600 hours. I'm not making this up. This is research, right? 3,600 hours people entertaining themselves. If you work 60 hours a week, you only put 3,100 hours in. You sleep eight hours a day. It's 2,900 hours. There's 8,300 hours in a week. Neil Postman, in his 1985 book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, talked about how the early founding fathers built these universities that we still know of and still respect, Yale, Harvard, and how they taught people to think critically back then. And, again, Webster's defines critical in this sense as involving skillful judgment as to the truth, merit, a critical analysis of the situation. This isn't to be critical and, and to poke away. It's to really understand. So, what is it that we think critically about? How much time do we spend entertaining ourselves? How many of us who have kids could imagine our kids spending 3,600 hours a week entertaining themselves? So, one of the things we could think critically about is God's word, and that leads me to point two. If we're going to take God at his word, we need to know what it says. Now, I'm sure everybody in the room already gets this, Okay, no, no big aha here. But if you're going to take God at his word, you need to know what it says. James 1.22 reads, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Those who look intently into the perfect law that give freedom and continue to do this, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they'll be blessed in what they do. So those who look intently into the perfect law and keep doing it. If we were to think critically about this perfect law. What does it really say? What are we talking to each other about? What do we really understand? Or am I out watching the Grammys? This is one of my favorite passages of the Bible because it speaks to the fact that you don't have to fail at anything if you're looking intently into this because he holds success. You will be blessed. He didn't say you won't have hard times. Pruning is part of the blessing. Right? And a little book called The People's Religion, American Faith in the 1990s, and I know that seems like a decade ago. George Gallup Jr. wrote a book called American, uh, The People's Religion. And in it, he says, it spoke about the fact that Americans revere the Bible, but they really don't know what it says. And they had all stats back it up. It showed that a survey of 13 to 19-year-olds believed the Bible to be the norm for setting the moral standard and they were largely ignorant of what standards it set. This is 13 to 19-year-olds in 1990. Fast forward 25 years, and here we sit. What do we know? Really? What are we thinking critically about? What's on your mind today? Does it have anything to do with God's Word? I'm not saying that to you, but we, to the culture that worships entertainment, we're not paying that close attention to it. Think about it. 
Proverbs 2.11 says, My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for insight, if you cry out loud for understanding, and if you look for wisdom as silver, search for it as hidden treasure, then you'll understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright. He's a shield to those whose walk is blameless, and he guards the course of the just and protects his faithful ones. I don't know about you, but I need some protection from time to time. And if I'm going to be successful in whatever God's called me to do, I've got to be protected from stuff. But these are the things we need to think critically about. And frankly, we're so busy with work and we're so busy with the things of the family. We're so busy, we're flipping exhausted. I'm exhausted. And it's only Wednesday. You okay, Mike? There's some irony to Mike taking care of the mic. But 1 Corinthians 13, 11 says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away the childish things behind me. So, so remind me, how, how many of you have kids? Right. You ever ask your kids a question and they go on and on like they're the flipping expert? I mean, they really believe they got this, right? And then there are other times they know they're lost, but they don't know that you know they're lost. How many, how many adults do you know that do that? I know a couple. They're not in this room. But I know a couple. So, Matthew 25, if I get to my third point, is to get after it and stay after it. <clears throat> and the Wall Street Journal once went out to see Sam Walton from Walmart. This is back when Walmart hit that big famous $50 billion stage. Procter & Gamble was part of that. I was working for an organization. I got to be there for part of this. It was really fun. <clears throat> and so here's this New York Times reporter, and she says to Sam Walton, she says, so Sam, you're $50 billion. That's amazing. What was it? What, what was the one thing that got you here? <laughs> Sam just kind of leans back, his chair creaks, and he grabs his hat, moves it around a little bit says, well, basically we just got a lot of good people who got after it and stayed after it. That was simply profound to me. And so when you read Matthew, it talks about uh, Matthew 25, don't worry about life and what you eat, drink, and wear, for the pagans run after all those things, and your Lord knows you need those too. But seek first, and, and seek is an ongoing process. It's, it's not something that takes you 10 minutes, unless you're looking for your keys, and maybe it takes you 20. But seek first the kingdom, of, uh, the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You know, Matthew 8 is the parable of the sower. Remember that? He's throwing seed everywhere. Uh, some of it's on a dirt path, some of it's in rocks, some of it's in thorns, some of it falls in good soil. 
in verse 11, it says, now the parable means this. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. Okay, that didn't last long for those people. Those on the rocks are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, not if testing comes, but in the time of testing, when it comes, they fall away. As for the seed that fell among the thorns, these are the ones who hear, but they go on their way, and they are choked by the worry and the riches and the pleasures or entertainment of life. And their fruit does not mature. In my Bible, these words are read, Jesus speaking. Okay? But as for the seed that landed on good soil, these are the ones who, after having heard the word, cling to it. Cling to it. Reason with it. With an honest and good heart. And bear fruit with steadfast, insurance, uh, steadfast endurance. So Sam didn't say, well, I had one person who got at it and stayed after it. He said, I got a bunch of good people who got after it and stayed after it. The fact that you're sitting here means you get that principle. Congratulations. Seriously. When testing comes, do we have enough root? Did we ever get any root? Are we developing root? Because James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. How many of you have ever had a significant trial in your life? How many of you had more than one? Yeah, the Bible talks about pruning. I used to be a landscaper. We pruned every year. I don't like getting pruned every year. I'm thinking, God, you got me last year. Can I be good for 10? Please, don't prune me. I think I'm bearing all the fruit I need to, and I'd rather not be pruned. Is that okay? Not if you're in the nursery business. You do this regularly, and it bears more and more and more fruit. Point number four is be reasonable. Acts chapter 17 says, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and reasoned with them from the scriptures to explain and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. I suspect most of you know this scripture, but, but he reasoned with them. Later on in verse 25, he's standing trial, and he's talking about his conversion. Now think about this. If I stood here, you met me for the first time, you heard the really nice introduction, which I'm still trying to live up to, from, <laughs> well, thanks Russell. But if I were here telling you the story that, you know, I was headed down 83, and this big bolt of light showed up, and I fell out of my car, and everybody in my car fell out of my car, and this big voice, I mean, can you imagine the drama? Would you, would you think I was nuts? Because in chapter 26, uh, as Paul was telling this story to King Agrippa, 
Festus interrupts him and says, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you insane. But what he says in verse 24 is, no, no, no. What I'm saying is reasonable. He reasoned with them. He proved from the Scripture. He went back to the laws of of Moses and the prophets. He explained how all of this trailed together to bring the coming of Christ. He reasoned with them. I know guys and gals, and I love them to death, but when they're in the midst of a conversation with someone who really doesn't know the Lord and really doesn't know that much, um, they get questions in their mind. They They ask these questions, and the response is something like, well, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Well, thanks, but that didn't help. It just didn't help. Think about it. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Don't we all? I bet 100% of us do. 99% of us have kids. I bet 100% of us revere Christ as Lord. That's easy. Most of us do that. But it goes on to say, And always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now, I was on a cruise early on, first, first cruise I ever went on. My wife and I were married a year. It was a Chuck Swindoll Christian cruise. I thought that's pretty good. I won. I won it. So we had to leave my one-year-old daughter behind, which my wife wasn't all that thrilled about. Um, but she was less thrilled about missing the boat. So we're on this boat. We're thinking this is going to be great. And, and then we're all out on the dance floor where the band's playing, but nobody's dancing. Because there's 2,000 Christians and 200 happy pagans on this boat. So we're all going, well, what, 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 what do we do? Do, do, we, what do we do? Out comes Chuck and Cynthia, who start dancing, and all of a sudden, boom, there's not enough room on the dance floor to hold us all. We're having a blast. Joyful celebrations. Next morning, we get up, go about our business, having a great time. In the evening dinner, in a ship, everybody goes like cattle. Mm-hmm. Six o'clock, eight o'clock, two dinner seatings. Everybody goes to the same place, Christians and pagans alike. And Chuck comes and says, uh, excuse me, I have an announcement. And he read this verse, 1 Peter 3, 15. Because apparently someone was trying to explain to a happy pagan that they were a committed Christian, but didn't do it with gentleness and respect. And that person said, get me the heck off this boat. And when they had a helicopter, come and get that couple. I don't think they reasoned. And I don't think they were gentle, and I don't think they did it in respect. Kyle Eidelman wrote a book called Not a Fan. And the short story here is, do you know the difference between a fan and a follower? Okay, because a fan... uh, is defined as an enthusiastic admirer, a spectator with extreme and or uncritical zeal. So much for critical thinking. And most of us who are a fan, whether it's a movie star or a football team, really know a lot about that person or that team, but we really don't know them. A follower is defined as a person who follows another in regard to his or her ideas and beliefs, a disciple. 
one who imitates, copies, or takes as a model. So, uh, when Trudy and I were first dating, one of the questions we had to get to a little sooner than I was comfortable with is the DTR conversation. Are you familiar with this? The define the relationship conversation. Where's it going to go? What's your intention? I'm just glad I didn't have to have it with her dad back then. But what is our relationship with Christ? Are we a fan or a follower? The Hebrew word for know, if, if you know a lot about somebody, that's great, but you really don't know them. In Genesis, we talk about Adam and Eve, and they knew each other, and knew in Hebrew is yada. So the next time you're talking to your wife and you give her the yada, 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 remember what you're really asking for. What do you really know about versus how do you really know someone are very, very different things. And Kyle's point is that a lot of us really are more fans than followers. So think about it. What do you know about Jesus? What have you learned from him? How do you follow? How do you make the time with all the work and with all the other stuff that we do? How do you find the time to sit at his feet and listen? I'm coming to the end here, so bear with me. But remember the story of Mary and Martha? Jesus goes over to their house. Martha, she's busy like crazy. Man, she's running all over the place. She reminds me of my wife. People come over. Everything has to be dusted. Everything has to be vacuumed. I've got to do a hundred things. And we just did them yesterday. And we're doing them again. And if I ask her about it, she gets upset. So we just do it. But here's Martha running all over the place. And there's Mary sitting there doing absolutely nothing but sitting at Jesus' feet. And she says, hey, Lord, come on. Can you get her up? His response was, Martha, Martha. You know when he says it twice. Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. I don't know about you in the busyness of your life, but I find it hard to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn and listen for any more than ten minutes. My prayers seem to be like I put a quarter or a dollar bill in a vending machine. Come on. We used to have ovens. We do pot roasts. You know, we go for hours. Now we have microwaves and it only takes 30 seconds and we're still tapping our feet going, come on, come on, come on, come on. How busy are we? And how is it really, that, how is that busyness taking you and me away from the feet of Jesus and thinking critically about his word? Again, the fact that you're taking time out to be here is affirmation of the fact that you get these principles and that you're already at work in this. So let me just encourage you to continue. Because the last point is simply this. We go from the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, to the great commission. Now, this wasn't a great suggestion. It wasn't a great idea. It might have been a great idea, but but basically... The Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19 says, Go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. You do that with your kids. 
Some of you are doing it with friends. Some of you are doing it with people in different generations than you. You're already doing it. Can you imagine if half, if just half the men of new life were to take this seriously, what this church would look like, what this local body, this local expression of the body of Christ would look like, and what we'd be doing? In my line of work, I call it disciple shaping. Whether you're learning or teaching, you're learning. It's a lifelong process. And we need to be thinking more critically about this. A book I read years ago by John Orberg, Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Him. Catchy little title. He says, in the section called Learning or Longing to Connect, Our need for community with people and the God who made us is to the human soul what food, water, and air is to the human body. We do crave this in some way, shape, or form. We're not all great conversationalists. We don't all have the confidence to do all of this. But deep in our soul, we want friends. We want to get to know people. But then it's like two porcupines dancing. How close do I get before it hurts? I don't want to get hurt. But we all want this, don't we? Don't we? So, time to teach. You know, we make decisions along the way. It's a natural process. We decide whether we go to college to become a doctor. We decide whether we're going to get married or have kids. All of those decisions force maturity on us. And they force us to think critically about who we are, dot, 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 becoming. So, the Great Commission applies to all of us. We all want to raise our kids well, and we all want our friends to be stronger in their faith, to be followers of Christ. So, if you're here tonight as one who's young in your faith, regardless of your age, congratulations. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your dedication to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your dedication to each other. Russell, thank you for all the time and energy that you put into this thing you called the net and for the way that you help us connect with people who can really help us. And if you're one of those who are willing and able to teach because you've been down the road and have a lot of experience and you're here to help people, to learn, to get on the same path, Congratulations, and thank you to you. It's a natural part of what the body of Christ does, and it's good to see it at work. And it's my privilege to have been here with you. So um, remember, your mind is central in all of this. You really need to think critically, and so much of the culture around us pulls us away from that. Don't let it be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Take God at his word, get at it, stay at it, be reasonable, and find some time to teach and bless others. Thanks very much.